0: artist and here we go thank you godwin if you could please welcome godwin thank you evelyn and uh and rmit uh, gallery and the staff and the organizers of this show it's a little bizarre this i'm my, I'm my own interviewer I maintain: if you change the body language, you change the man. And uh, so I'm a changed man, is not the real Godwin. Um, I uh, look. I will. Um, I will begin by uh, uh, talking about my own work in the uh, room behind me. The room is quite small. You may not fit in. I suggest you perhaps sit on the floor. Uh, stand back, be careful of the two other works Uh, the work by Irene Barbaris on the wall here I don't think you can injure the mic Parr on the end wall but uh, could I invite you into this room and I'll speak about the drawing after perhaps 10 minutes we'll exit and come into the main gallery after you Claire. could you hold that for a minute? Don't press any button. I'm not. <laughs> oh, you're on iTunes. I'm <laughs> not doing things. Like Don't say, thing. say anything, <laughs> Thanks. You're uh, welcome. Um, one of the remarks, uh, I will begin by contextualising my work and uh, myself, this exhibition, contemporary Australian drawing. Uh, it's um, to a considerable extent, it's artists of my generation. There are a few younger artists like Jennifer Mills and others, and there are some older artists. But the majority of artists in this exhibition are my generation. But I had a an odd sensation when I first saw the show. Enjoyed, I have enjoyed the company of these artists but it doesn't quite look like my generation as I remembered it, not my formative generation. Uh, my formative decade, really, well, it was perhaps my teen years, but, um, but I think as a professional artist I became formed during my 20s. My 20s were the 1970s. And the 1970s did not look like that room. There's perhaps, there are one or two works in that room that that are reminiscent of the nature of the seventies as I remember them in visual art in Australia and one would be uh, Alan Mittelman one of the smallest works in the show next door Alan Mittelman is uh, an abstract painter he's really a minimalist although his work is very finely worked <coughs> growing up as an art student and then a young artist in the 1970s I was really situated within modernism and modernism tended to be, <coughs> at that point, had run an extraordinary history and brought us to a, a point where imagery became almost outlawed from the canvas or from the paper, um, imagery became minimal, imagery went off the, off the paper, went onto the walls and onto the floor, it made artists like Mike Parr on the end wall here, who is primarily a performance artist, an artist like Alan Mittelman. Who is uh, who I think situates himself within minimalism and, uh, and a tradition of, uh, of a harder edge abstraction and a soft edge abstraction that's continued in younger artists like Wilma Tobacco, who's also in the room next door. The 1980s was quite a shift uh, and within the Western world, a lot of figuration emerged. So by the time I was in my 30s, suddenly there was a tsunami of artists that had a figurative interest but that had not been the experience for the previous ten years and as a young artist you'll find something quite similar you'll find profoundly the fashion will change probably within a ten or fifteen year cycle um, and a lot of the drawing of the nineteen uh, year, year, 1980s has been revived in a number of ways but things had to be big and bloated in the 1980s, bank accounts were bloated shoulders were bloated hair was bloated, big hair was big and shoulders, lots of reverb and all instrumentation, overproduction, Duran Duran, it was all, make it big and bloated. And some of the big was majestic, you can take your favourites, and some of the big was uh, ridiculous. And I was aware when I made large work that I could be making dinosaurs and I made a lot of very large work and the work behind me in comparison to that work is not particularly large. Mike made fairly large work. Perhaps the artist in the next room who, in the 80s, was making the hugest work is Bernard Sachs, who works at uh, the BCA and has a work on the firewall over here. Bernard and I encountered in the mid-80s, and uh, I might mention this too. I I discussed with Bernard an idea then, and we considered doing it. He did big um, panoramic filmic work, uh, drawings, that were, were vast, horizontally huge. I tend to be doing ver- vertically huge. I liked the cathedral Gothic, and he liked the, uh, t- the the like the spread of the big cinematic screen. And because my work tends to be centrally oriented, I tend toward the center, and he tended toward the broad spectacle, the spatial spectacle. Um, we discussed the idea of embedding one of my drawings in one of his. So he did a. Uh, it's a collaboration that never happened, but I've always liked the idea that he might do a huge drawing and leave a blank zone in the middle. And I did a big drawing with a center, refined center but a blank exterior. And we swap the drawings and I complete the center of his and he completes the surround of mine. Now, it never happened, it was a good idea. But it does accent the fact that, s- that artists tend toward the center or tend outward. And those who tend outward often become uh, uh, spatial, color field, abstract expressionists, landscapists, decorative artists, installationists. And those who tend toward the center will maybe tend to be uh, portraitists, figurative artists, classical artists, religious artists. Religious art always tends to the center, at least in Western religion, but also in Asian religion. The icon, the icon that's in the middle and the deity or whatever it might be. Um, So one sees those shifts through time so this show next door uh, is really a, a generation that became uh, very conspicuous as a figurative generation, I'd say from the 80s and after. Uh, but it's, uh, it does not typify drawing prior to the 80s. Uh, it's not intended to, it's contemporary Australian drawing. I think it's contemporary because they're all still alive. Uh, <coughs> the Amagos, this, this work here, uh, it's difficult for me to clarify the nature of my own work Uh, um, without mentioning a companion that I exhibited with during the 1970s, a a companion artist called Warren Brenninger. Um, He and I actually initially uh, became conspicuous because of our photographic exhibitions but he was a painter and sculptor, primarily a sculptor and I had my deepest roots were in drawing and uh, (coughs) so our photographic work was affected by the physicality of sculpture the viscerality of sculpture and the handmade nature of uh, of um i always found drawing then and now uh, sorry photography then and now too sterile i still uh, i like clarity and I, I do like precision in certain contexts but i don't like sterility there seems to be a mania for the morgue in contemporary uh, uh art certainly in contemporary television um criminal intent or silent witness Just preparing. it's uh, Just the morgue even in kitchenware it's I think it's hard to set up a kitchen now without them getting onto stainless steel with blood troughs the the look is uh, it's a mortuary look and I find a lot of contemporary digital photography has got the she there's something that's disappeared chiaroscuro that it hardly it's rare commodity uh, in contemporary photography uh, we like the sharp glare of uh, full illumination. Most mobile photography is, uh, is very bright. The shaping of a face with tone is less common. We floodlight so much of our experience. Uh, and that kind of clarity and that kind of sterility I'm not particularly fond of. I've, there are three things I treasure uh, as very personal aesthetics in my own work. One is what I call the aesthetic of obscurity. I find obscurity often far more poignant than clarity. Another is an aesthetic of damage, just subtle injury, nearly always beautifies uh, form. It seems to create a sense of history. Um, there's a third one in there, and it's very dear to me, but I've lost it for a minute, but uh, uh, I'll locate it. <laughs> I could make one up, but I'll, let it, I'll leave it lapse for a minute. Uh, um, it doesn't look like I have an aesthetic of obscurity, uh, perhaps on the basis of this, but uh, but the subtlety of um, of an imagery that's fugitive is, is interesting to me. I mentioned my friend Warren Brenninger. Um, we had quite strong similarities. Alan McCulloch wrote us up in the Australian Cyclopedia of Art in an early entry, and the entries for Warren and the entry for me are almost identical. The phrasing is identical, but he swapped the names round uh, because he couldn't separate us. We're a little uh, combo, a little sort of our own little version of Gilbert and George, or Lyndall Brown and Charles Green, and uh, but we were different. Uh, Warren tended to work with the female; I tended to work with the male. Warren tended to colour; I tended to monochromatic and toward black and white. He tended to. Uh, uh, photography, I tended to drawing, he tended to the full face and I tended to the profile. I like the way the profile sat in the flat plane of, con- of uh, modernist art. Modernist art is um, uh, does not welcome depth at least modernist art until the 1980s did not welcome depth in fact it uh, almost eliminated all strategies for creating the illusion of depth and so the face occupies itself in deep space. It's forward in the jaw, forward in the part of the mouth, forward in the nose, forward in the gaze, forward in the forehead, whereas the face lies flat in two-dimensional space. That's why you slap the face. You don't slap the front of the face. It hurts too much if you slap the front of the face. It can damage the eyes, but slap the side of the face, you less damage. So The profile sits in flat space, like the sovereign on a, on a coin which is never in full face. Um, So for a number of reasons I worked with the profile for a long time. And then I found several years during the early 90s I was just longing to work with the face. And I thought I have to overturn modernism to do that. I've got to shake off deep space. And I also felt uh, um, a courtesy to my friend Warren. (coughs) The face was his domain. He had done a series called The Expulsion of Eve in which he'd done, um, uh, he did several series of 33, so he did 99, he did 3 and then he went on but over a period of decades he did multiple drawings of a female face in a state of ecstasy. And I thought he is such a champion and such um, a fine artist of the face, I cannot go there. Uh, but eventually I just began working with the face. and uh, <coughs> and. And I made a drawing that I called Margo in 1998. Uh, look, I was doing, I was did faces, but I tend to obscure the eyes, obscure the upper head, so the head was kind of fragmentary. It was rarely complete, and I was afraid of the sentiment that might just hemorrhage from the eyes if I drew eyes, so I obscured eyes. But in 1998, I made a large. It was larger than this a drawing. I called it Margo. Imago is a term that can really have two applications in biology. It means an insect at its point of definitive and perfect flowering, like a butterfly. So it goes from a worm, from a larvae, from a chrysalis to a larvae to a a butterfly. And that's the imago, when it opens up in its most beautiful form. In psychology, it means the image you carry around in your head of you. So it's the perfect image you carry. It's you that's 32 if you're a bloke, you at 26 if you're a woman or whatever it is. You it's that image you carry in your head uh, that uh, that's kind of, that can relate to your state in terms of... I suppose it's more popularly understood in the context of anorexia nervosa as the image uh, a young woman or man might have in his head of, of whether he's big or fine or fine-featured or whatever. So, Imago relates to this idea of the definitive perfected self. This is clearly not me, neither is anyone specific. I might say the Imagos for me were such a release, not only to work with the face, but I had for 20 years, with every major drawing, I drew the entire anatomy of the subject. It was quite a complex process, even with huge drawings. So I'd draw the entire anatomy, and then I'd cover the whole anatomy with layers of China graph. Um And uh, but, and I used the anatomy on the profile and through the body, but I never used the anatomy in the full face. That was which was intuitive smartness, because the skull frontally viewed is hideous, and the skull frontally used is such a cliche uh it's the great cliche of the pirate flag it's the great cliche of costume parties and and uh, death metal rock bands so the um the frontal face i didn't um i didn't uh make it skeletal uh <coughs> when i did the amargos i actually allowed myself to be a minimalist abstraction with each one it's, sorry i know i'm using the terms lightly and with no reverence but stuff it you know with I, my work has often been dealt with over a period of 40 years with a lack of reverence <coughs> so it's a two way street this but when I began these works I, I actually just began with an ovoid drawn, no model and no photograph I just drew an ovoid uh, in graphite pencil and then just filled it in with several days of dense china graph drawing patching if you like so, And if you know Chinagraph pencils, it's a very waxy pencil and it builds up like porcelain. So I'd have just a big white disc. And I might say all my works for their darkness are actually drawn in white. Uh, I draw the flesh in white. I almost never use a black pencil. Uh, but I draw an entire image in white Chinagraph and then I cover it in crushed pastel and dust. And then I clean it. That's basically the process. So this is a white disc clean, covered in dust and charcoal, and uh, no charcoal actually, there's no charcoal in it, it's crushed pastel, sometimes colours, and then I (coughs) clean clean it and redraw into it. So the big disc of white is done, and it'll take several days to do it, it's great doing it, don't have to think too much, just go deeply into the work, get the music right, uh, and then and then structure a face, and it's schematic, I, I confess it's schematic, but the face is schematic. Uh, nature has not varied the shape very much, and when n- nature varies the design of the face, uh, people become hospitalized and uh, and put into in- institutions. So the schema of the face, the one nose, the symmetry, the two eyes, the single mouth, You'd, the cyclops is not really... You know we tend to stay with the formula, the scheme of the face, <clears throat> so I work with that, but then the real difficulty is, and I have a difficulty with this, and i 'm sure every artist has a similar difficulty. The difficulty is to head for your objective but not to fall into the the many pitfalls that are there. How do you create a universal image of the face without it looking like a storeroom mannequin or uh, or um uh, a digitalized face or a uh, cosmetically reconstructed face. So how do I make it look true and universal and how to make it suggest individuality without coming up with personality types? Uh, and how do I work with a particular face without it looking like I'm doing anthropological studies? Now I've done a Japanese. Now I'm doing a an islander. Now I'm doing a, a Caucasian face and now I'm doing an Arab. It's not about anthropology and it's not about individual portraiture. So so what am I trying to do? I'm actually not quite sure what I'm trying to do. Uh, But I'm dealing, I think, with the most uh, uh, visually riveting image that we work with. And whether you're an artist or not, you look at faces. In conversation you look at faces, on television. You don't turn on television hoping to God they show you the shoes or the knees. Give us the elbows we, or the. can we see more of the floor? We tend to look at faces. It's faces we glance at and then glance away. So I already am convinced that our embedded uh, <coughs> preoccupation is with the face. Uh, but how do I work through its ordinariness and its commonplaceness? Maybe it's to do with my age or my circumstance, but I'm overwhelmed currently. By and a, a student told me very kindly and very gently yesterday that uh, he thought I was losing the plot in a recent in a recent presentation when I became overheated about this but um, I, in in the studio, I think I am a different creature, but in ordinary circumstance i 'm pretty ordinary but uh, the um, I am currently quite preoccupied by the contempt we have for extraordinary things that are familiar to us. Uh, and uh, fellow artists, uh, Leslie Duxbury comes to mind, who uh, who sees the sky, who sees the clouds, and who sees the climate. And last night there was a magnificent sky across my suburb and I looked at it and, and was, uh, I just thought how blind I am to the sky. To the night sky, to the starry sky, and Leslie Duxbury is not, and uh, how we close down our reception to even just the phenomenon of the blue sky, and but we do this with the face, and I think um, a lot of artists, and I hope hope not young artists, but a lot of people can think, no, this is a well ploughed field. Everyone has visited the face, every artist, every culture, every part of our culture. Advertising's done it. Um, Um, everyone's been to the face there is nothing new you can say about the face Uh, somehow you have to find it as an artist you've got to find what is new in this symbol that I'm looking at whether it be the vertical, the horizontal or something as complex as a face so the imago, when I did it first I just thought I was doing one and then I just had to do another sometimes I wait a year and just think no I finished that and then I think I've got to do it again I'm actually caught in a whirlpool uh and i want to exit i'm at a point where i want to exit from working with these but uh th- it's actually quite tricky uh to talk about the show i uh, um, i i feel i have to sort of change identity a little bit there's um, uh I don't know if this is more accented than it is with other people, but I find, um, with my own work, I often feel like I'm caught in a black hole, a high gravitational pull towards personal preoccupations, um, and uh, and when it comes to my own work, I'm sort of a kind of a fundamentalist. I kind of uh, I uh, the I cannot escape the grip of my own preoccupation. When I step into a gallery, uh, I feel much more, it's the word Catholic? I sort of love it all. I want to kiss everybody, everyone's darling, and I love all the art. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit, again, it, for me it's a little bit like a solar system. There's a big burning sun in the middle, and that's perhaps my ego. And, uh, and then there's a whole, ra- and then branching out from that, the whole range of. Things. and I know that's not the way it is. I know that's not the way it is in reality, but it feels like that. And uh, uh, I, w- I, um, I won't go. I won't pick favourites, but I'll just make just a few comments. Jenny Watson over here. Uh, I re-met her recently in the gallery, and we, I had a conversation. She said Jenny, I've actually got drawings of you I did in 1970 uh, uh, when you were life modelling at the art school I was at, uh, that I'd never given her. So. I have known Jenny since uh, those very early days when she was an undergraduate student at the v c a at the national gallery school and uh, um, and she was the most regular life model we had then uh, so I must dig them out at some point and I promised her i'd give them to her um, uh, Bernard Sachs is the artist I was referring to before that uh Bernard and I became aware of each other's work in the mid and late 1980s. If you haven't seen uh, a a broad selection of Bernard's work, you must do so. His Those visual panoramic works uh, of, of the earlier decades are quite pivotal and quite iconic images. I haven't talked to him about this, and I don't know a lot about this work, the only thing in this work that is clearly identifiable to the Bernard Sachs of 20 years ago is this checkerboard edge, where he uses the masking tape on the edge, and perhaps the reference to uh, Germanic culture. But um, uh, Bernard was the first artist who gave me permission to use the word Gothic. We uh, we were in a show to get a small curated show together some years ago, and in a conversation, I said, "Oh, look, my fear is." people are going to think it's a, we're all completely gothic, it's a revival of the gothic. And he just said, oh, relax, what's wrong with gothic? And uh, suddenly I felt better. Uh, uh, it's funny how you can carry a great burden of, um, of, uh, of critique around with you and then find to other people it's inconsequential. I'd say that about Alan Mittelman, who's got the little drawing uh, round the corner here. Um, uh, I uh, hope, hope these artists don't mind me making personal remarks like this, but I felt like I was, uh, an o- I felt ostracized, but I think I was probably self-ostracized, uh, during the 70s and, uh, in the, into the uh, 80s. And I remember, uh, in an exhibition in round about 1983, uh, several older generation artists who are abstractionists complimented me, and it meant so much to me. I, as a as an observer of politics, I always love it when a um, a member of parliament or whatever crosses the floor. I hate it that people think uh, stubbornly stay with uh, with an ideology even against all logic and all circumstance. And when a person who's left wing or right wing says on a matter of conscience I have to cross the floor, I always think that's just, except when it's a whole crowd of people and it's, yeah, it's safe in a crowd, but when an individual does it, I think that's so courageous and when I it was into my mid-30s, suddenly I found some of these artists who I thought would have no time for a figurative artist complimented me and interestingly uh, Alan Middleman's compliment was about the fineness and sensitivity to surface, which was something he shared, and uh, uh, so quite often you find that the very artists that you think would would condemn what you do uh, may not be like that. That's an advantage in living a little bit longer too. Um, I feel like quite a strong sense of companionship with every, pretty well every artist in this room or those ones I know personally. Um, Fifteen years ago, 20 years ago, it might have been not like that. So you sort of sharpen yourself with your differences. And as you get older as an artist, you identify your samenesses. So things do change. Some things change. Maybe some things don't. Uh, isn't John Wallsley fantastic? Isn't Wilma a fabulous counterpoint? Um... Any anyone want to announce a favourite? And? I do want to ask, I'm sorry. Can I ask Go, go, Michael. I don't. I don't think it matters. But I am interested that these both the Bernard Sachs and the Wilma Tobacco are called drawings. I mean, they could just as easily be. Hmm. Uh, I think. Uh, look, uh, Michael. I. Uh, it, uh, I do agree with you too, to some extent. I, I, I won't, I've talked quite a, a lot lately about our uh, mode of identifying drawing. I think, um, uh, museums, I think, tend to equate drawing with a work on paper. So if it's a work on paper, it can be classified as a drawing. So we now find that drawing, photographs printed on paper, Inkjet prints on paper, uh, montages on paper can be classified as a drawing. And I think that's a museum category that's shunted down to uh, all other practices. So if it's on paper, but then artists like, uh, Mike Parr, who's very much a performance artist, he does work on paper. But, um, that one of the things that I appreciated as a, as a, uh, sorry, I'm changing your question a little bit. I'm jumping a bit. But, um, uh, one of the unusual things or the ironies that I identified in, when I was younger as an artist, is that the conventional drawing that I was engaged in, uh, which was figurative, was at a remove from modernism, but the most radical aspect of modernism in the 70s was performance art. Particularly brutal performance art. And there was blood spilling in performance art, if you remember in the 70s. There was even performance art by amputation and Mike Parr if you don't know it's and only has one arm and am I okay to say this one of his early performances and I don't actually I might even question the morality of this he stuffed meat up his sleeve with an artificial hand and in front of an audience hacked his arm off and people in the audience didn't know it wasn't his real arm they didn't know he was a one armed man. Um, uh so performance art in the seventies was often very brutal, but it was often the performance artists who left a stain, a spill, a smudge, or a residue that they call drawing. So drawing became drawing did have a connection with the most radical wing of modernist art in the seventies. Um, and and you know, as often as said drawing doesn't identify itself by medium it's not, you know, it doesn't declare the medium and, uh, and that gives it a great breadth of interpretation. Uh, but I, I, I do think, uh, I do think that drawing at some point engages, um, uh, design and measurement, whether it's expressive design or intellectual design or, or whether it's textual. It, it identifies design, uh, um, and, in in a manner that hasn't has a measured intellectual aspect or intuitive either could be <laughs> but um uh wilmers's work on paper but in other respects it uh, it 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 may not may or may not be identified as drawing i think it's an important th- again i think it's uh uh it could be an issue. I think it's it's like that solar um, model I used, that uh, a certain proximity to the centre of a definite gives something definition. Uh, a far removed from from that centre. Um, uh, uh, <coughs> I'm thinking of again Mercury, Venus, Earth, right out to Neptune, Pluto. At a certain distance, the gravitational hold no longer holds sway. Um, and uh, and maybe definition is lost uh, as a drawing it becomes another mode of practice this uh, uh, in a general sense I think both of these exhibitions the constellation show next door and this one tend to conventionality um, whether you regard that as a critical remark or uh, or a complimentary remark any other remarks about that? Uh, I might be losing my way, everybody. The further I get away from my own ego, I the uh, got- less the less reliable I am. So uh, I think we've also let Godwin um, run thanks, over so time. And uh, if there's one last question or not, then um, I'd like uh, you to all um, thank Godwin. Uh, applause for the digital resolution. <laughs> Heroic crusader in the 1970s who worked within a, within a, um, a particular mode. Uh, Pam Hallander was a more courageous artist than I was and, uh, certainly a courageous teacher. Um, sh- she was the most prom- quietly prominent, um, teacher of, uh, constructive drawing and, uh, uh, she was working at Paran during the 70s. And um, there are so many contemporary artists of about my age who owe a lot to Pam Hallendale for her pedagogy and for her teaching. There'll be people in here who know her well. Lots of people raise their hats to her. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but she's a fantastic woman to meet. She is so small, but she's so dynamic. She's very, very petite, and she must be close to 80. Um, and uh, and she won the Nobel Prize this year uh, and uh, I had the pleasure of introducing Virginia Grayson who did the work over here to Pam Hallandale which was a hilarious sight because Ginny's this high and Pam's this high <laughs> and Ginny bent all the way down to shake her hand and looked kind of so crazy uh, but um, uh, so um, Pam is a bit of history uh, certainly part of the history of drawing in this country and uh, this exhibition does have a link, I believe, because there's a, a book being made around the uh, practitioners from this show, is that correct? Uh, by Janet McKenzie. And uh, her, f- she made a volume called Contemporary Australian Drawing in 1984. Pam's work was on the cover of that work back then. And a number of these artists are also in that show, in that book and in the associated exhibitions then. So there is a sense of continuity of history here. Uh, so it's both contemporary and it's historical. Thanks very much, Evelyn. No worries. Thank you, Godwin.